Hi, it's Tom Werman, and you're watching CMS TV. It is Chris Aiken Presents, and I, of course, am Chris Aiken. And today on the show, we are uh, we are going to interview yet another legend. And I mean a legend when it comes to, maybe not for everybody, but for me, certainly. Because this guy's catalog literally raised me. And I, I say that not even jokingly. I would say from 1982-3 through like 92-3, there was not a week that went by that I did not listen to something that this guy produced. He's a monster producer, has produced everything under the sun that any of you 80s metal fans would have loved. He is the one, the only, Mr. Tom Werman. Tom, how are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, man. Um, I didn't even intro the book because I'm like excited, but you do have a new book. It's called Turn It Up, My Time Making Hit Records in the Glory Days of Rock Music. Long title, perfect title for what you've done. Little subtitle there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, Tom, you know, we'll get into some of the questions that I have of your catalog in a, in a minute, but... Why don't we start with talking about where we're at today with you writing a book? It's it's never easy to write a book. I've written books. I've got six books myself out, so I know the difficulty of it. And certainly writing about yourself, it's not easy to kind of share things that you know are going to ruffle some feathers here and there. So talk a little bit about the decision to write the book and the decision to be, you know, pretty upfront and honest with with everything you wrote. Well, I try to be uh, I try to be frank and honest. Uh, you know, I wrote the book because I mean, bas basically, I wanted to uh, explain to people and tell people why the music I love is great. Okay. Uh, you know, um, I don't I don't listen to much uh, that that I did myself. But I did notice an increasing amount of curiosity about the 70s and 80s music, 60s, 70s and 80s, actually. And I see the classic rock era as closed, finite. Okay. You know, um, sometime in the 90s, uh, we closed the book on that one. In a way, you know, there, are still, there were still some post-90s uh, rock and roll bands. But basically, the guitar has just about disappeared from pop music um we don't have too many shredders left right. um i had done one podcast a few years ago uh, about the making of shout at the devil and it got 150,000 hits sure and i i said well this is telling me that there's a lot of interest in classic rock out there and I also came across a very critical review of me, not my music, not my productions, me. Okay. Uh, by a guy I didn't know at all and had never met. <laughs> and I, I was a little pissed off. And, and, and I wrote uh, an email to the editor of the blog. And I said, can I please answer this? Would you print an answer? And he said, uh, he said, sure. I wrote, I wrote him a rebuttal. I, I, I pretty much eviscerated the guy. Uh, I think because I was not happy. 
And he said, hey, our readers loved what you had to write. Would you write some more? So I wrote 18 episodes, starting with, you know, how I got into the record business and up to the present, really. And uh, that was that turned out to be the basis for the book. Um, I kept writing things as I recalled them, and I would start fitting them in where I thought they belonged chronologically. And slowly but surely, uh, a book was formed, uh, and it took over three years. Uh, sure. I never sat down like a pro. You know, right. pros say, well, I got my strong two cups of coffee at 6 a.m., and I pounded out 10 pages, regardless of how I felt. And I didn't do that. I felt, uh, you know, I, I wrote when, when, when the, the mood was there, when I recalled something. And I would write for maximum 10, 15 minutes at a time. Okay. And there it is. There's, there's the book. I was very lucky to get an agent and a publisher pretty quickly. Um, you know, it's, uh, that, was, that was the most daunting part. Sure. Thinking that, you know, because I got 10 rejections right away. And, really? and the 10th said, I don't do this, but try this guy. And I tried that guy. And immediately he said, this is right up my alley. And he got me a publisher uh, within a few days. So, sure. There you go. What, what was their reason for rejecting you if they gave it? I know a lot of those are form letter thanks, but it doesn't fit what we're doing right now, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. you know, what what could be the reason? Because you've you've worked... If nothing else, your body of work, you would think, would make it instantly sellable to a, to a publisher. I guess. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly why, but music books, they, I think they really want to hear from the stars. And the, this behind-the-scenes thing, you know, one of them said that even the Clive Davis book uh, – didn't do that well and that you know so they they get scared off and 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 they just many of them said the behind the scenes book you know we're not really interested in that you know they want a keith richards book or a springsteen book or, you know that 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 gets their attention I, i'm not sure why um but but the uh, the publisher of this book just does uh it, they're they're in london and and they do only um pop culture and okay. music. Yeah. So, um, and there, my editor was great, uh, left me alone pretty much. So that's it. Here it is. Next week it, it comes out. I'm not sure how quickly they get to bookstores or whatever. It could, it's, you've been able to pre-order it on Amazon for a couple of months now. Sure. Definitely. Well, Tom, let, let's dig into your career a little bit. And I don't want to turn this into, you know, way back when type of a thing. But just basically, can you give us an overview of how you got into the production business? Because reading your resume and your website and whatnot, you didn't start there. You, you know, you, you started somewhere else. What, what was it that led you to the production side of things? Well, it was quite a few steps. I started way very, very far away from where I wound up. Um, you know, I had an MBA and, and for some silly number of reasons, I, I got a job at a big advertising agency in New York and I spent a year there and I, I was suicidal by the end. I, I was really unhappy. Um, 
And um, a few things happened in that time. Saw some very significant um, concerts. And um, I think right around then, I had, I had recently seen The Who debut Tommy for the first time in New York okay. at the Fillmore East. Um, and I was in New York, and I'd seen a lot of really good uh, music, live music. Stone's first show, Beatles at Carnegie Hall. Uh, really good stuff. And and ha having been so disappointed in what I was doing and not enjoying even getting out of bed in the morning, I wrote a letter to Clive Davis. And, and uh, after a few interviews, he uh, hired me. I, wow. I, I got to see him, which which I said in, in the book was was, uh, you know, tantamount to having a, a, a Catholic seminary student score an audience with the Pope. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, he was the most important guy. He there happened to be a job open at Epic Records in the A and R department, which was creative, not marketing, which was fine with me. Basically, they gave me a, an American Express card, uh, a CBS corporate American Express card, and said, "Go find us some hits." Ah, what a <laughs> job! Come on, I'm 25 years old. Right. It could be the best, probably the best job in the world at that sure. time for me. I was a musician, you know, I, I was lucky because I was, I wasn't writing for a job. I was writing from a, a relative position of strength because I had a job and it was okay. a good, and I had a degree, but I said, I don't want to be in marketing. So I signed REO Speedwagon first, right off the bat Wow! in, in the A&R department. And um, then over the next five years, I tried to sign Kiss, Rush, and Leonard Skinner. And my boss passed on all of them. Wow. <laughs> you know, he was a smart guy. I loved the guy. He was great, but he really didn't have a rock and roll head. Um, I was kind of trying to introduce rock and roll to Epic Records at the time. And so I, he left and I got a new boss. And the boss said, what have you been doing here? And I said, and I told him the story. And then he said, wow, uh, um, that's really a, a shame. Is there anyone you're interested in now? And I said, well, Ted Nugent. I'm, I'm actually interested in Ted Nugent. Sure. Not, politic not politically, but musically. Mm -hmm. And um, so we signed Ted. Uh, I took him out to see him. And he, he, he was with me. He was very agreeable, this guy, and, and very musical, Steve Popovich. And... And, and we signed Ted. And at that point, I had had so little um, that, that I had actually signed in the last five years that I went into the studio a lot. Because okay. it was right down the block, really. And I, and I went in to protect my investment. Because if Ted would have been a stiff, then I couldn't have imagined staying at the, at the label, keeping my job. Because, uh, you know... I was useful there, but sure. If you're an A&R man, you um, you know, you really should find some some successful acts. So I was in there a lot. I horned in, and I and I I didn't I didn't uh, love the way uh, uh, the rock and roll aesthetic, the musical aesthetic of the guy who was his producer, who owned his production contract. So I kept making suggestions and. Okay. And enough so that at the end of that record, they gave me co-producer credit. And that's how it happened. Wow. 
Okay. Wow, this leads to an interesting question to me. With with that, and I get it, but at the same time, knowing, and this might be a little bit of hindsight that doesn't meet the timeline, which maybe makes it make sense, but knowing not only that you found Ted and that you had found Ario Speedwagon, but you had also found three or four others that became massive. Yeah. That's a big jump to just say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, most, and, and I'm just talking for most people, most people would say, I'm this close to being the breakout A&R guy and would have yeah. stayed there. Did you, were you nervous to jump all the way off or did you not have to jump all the way off? Did people still listen to you on an AR, A&R standpoint, even after you went more into production? Oh, sure. Because I really, uh, I only did uh, one or two Ted Nugent records and I was still a co-producer. Um, and then I signed Cheap Trick. Right. And then Jack Douglas did their first album and then he was unavailable and somehow, uh, you know, they said, okay, I can do it. And, and, and that was my first solo album was in color um, for, 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 for Cheap Trick. But I, I was still a working A&R guy. And I, I became, you know, what they called a staff producer at that point. I was, a, I was a, a, they were happy to let me go in the studio, but I could only work for them. You know, and and I and then I signed Molly Hatchet. So I did three uh, Cheap Trick albums and five Molly Hatchet albums, and they were all gold or platinum. Right. And uh, so at that point, I just spent all my time really in 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 the studio. And I asked for a raise in in 1982, and because I I said, well, gee whiz, um, I've been here. I've been here uh, 12 years and right. I have made the company probably, you know, $150 million and right. maybe more, maybe hundreds of millions. And I've been getting, you know, a pittance. And, sure. And I said, I, I, I think, I think I'd like a raise. I think I'm worth more than what you're paying me for a salary, even though I was getting a small amount for royalties. Right. If I had been on the street as an independent guy, I would have been making 35 cents an album. And as it was, I was, they were giving me about a nickel. And then I think I got 12 cents on Molly Hatchet. So I said, give me, give me a raise. They said, you know, no, I don't think so. Wow. So I said, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to leave. And, and I left. And wow. then I became briefly head of A&R at Electra Records. Okay. And that's when I got, in, you know, connected with Motley Crue. And, and then I was an independent producer and started making a, a real living. And, and, and that was it. I kept working until 19, you know, the 90s. Sure. What what did you think as, as somebody, especially at Electra, you know, you were at Electra at maybe the most exciting time with Electra, with Motley Crue, with Metallica, you know, you, there were so many ginormous bands that came out of that, that era and that label. There was also a lot of really interesting uh, A&R people as well. Michael Alago comes to mind and uh, yeah. Johnny Z over at Megaforce. And, you know, it seems like maybe the world itself was into that frame of mind to understand that metal was coming 
you know, and you obviously were a big part of that. Was that what the environment was at the time? Or did you guys all just kind of luck out and find the right bands that became massive? No. Well, L.A. was a, a big source for that. And I was sure. living in L.A. because you, you basically had to. Sure. Uh, you, you live in L.A., New York or Nashville if you were, uh, you know, if you wanted to make a lot of records. Right. Easily. Um, I was a I was a pop guy, really. My head is is more pop than metal. Um, which is probably why I was able to make um, enough hit singles to sell a lot of albums because sure. it, it was either AM or FM then, and 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 so if you were if, if you had a great album, uh, you might sell a few hundred thousand, maybe half a million, but if you had a hit single off that album, you could sell three million. So anyway, it. Uh, I'm not sure why there was an explosion. Uh, you know, the hair, the hair metal glam thing was was big, and uh, these things seem to happen in spurts. You know, like sure. Seattle, uh, which was uh, around the time when I kind of fell out of favor. Uh, right. I had thought I could do this kind of thing for the rest of my life, and I, I was very wrong about that. So, what? Why? Why do you think you you didn't adapt to it? Did you just not feel the music? Well, I was, you know, what what was I at the time? I was fifty or so, and and right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and it didn't seem that logical for me to be making records for teenagers, um, and 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 there, and you know. I had always tried to be precise and perfect in music. I, I thought that the only way you could get power in music was to be uh, neat, you know, and, mm -hmm. and not sloppy. Um, I thought sloppy didn't, um, you know, it was something I tried to avoid. You know, sure. if it was out of tune or out of time, you do it again, um, you know, until you get it right. But... Eventually, by the mid '90s, there you know there are a lot of bands that not only didn't care about being precise, they didn't want to be precise, right? Because you know they 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 uh, had a, uh, they rejected. They'd say it sounds too good, right and, right? right. And no Seattle band with any street credibility could really comfortably work with a producer that had done Motley Crue. Because because Motley Crue, when they were making, you know, when I was working with them, they were really cool and really big. And then in the late '90s, they had become, you know, a parody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you know, the whole '80s thing was they hated glam, and you know, and, and every uh, trend. Um, kind of ignores the last trend and considers it silly or corny or anyway uh i was out you know right. I, I i saw the writing on the wall with the beastie boys and uh the nevermind album and and i said you know th this is going to come to an end and and in 2000 it did so I closed up shop and left LA and reinvented myself. Very good, man. Well, let, let's dig into, into some of the records that you've done, because, you know, like I said, all these records st are still in my, 
daily, weekly listening. You know, some for good, some not, but, um, and I know you know that too, but I'm going to guess, tell me if I'm dead wrong on this, but your greatest skill is not turning knobs and shifting shifters and whatnot. Your greatest skill was dealing with difficult personalities and finding a way to get these guys that come in with these giant stoked, stroked egos and getting them to participate and not overthink what you hear. Fair statement or not? Uh, yeah, they. Uh, everybody seems to think that it was more difficult than it was to work okay. with these bands. Um, I had very little difficulty, and the, the 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 misbehavior, the bad behavior, and the chaos that people associate with uh, many of these bands was really outside the studio. They were fairly serious and diligent about making records. Uh, it was important to them. Uh, I would just listen to the music. I, I am completely, uh, uh, I'm hopeless as a technician. I mean, really hopeless. And, and I depended 100% on my recording engineer. And I had some good ones, luckily. Um, but I just listened to the music and something would occur to me in my head. And I'd say, let's try this. Let's cut that in half. Let's double that. Let's try the hi-hat instead of the ride cymbal. Cut the cut the intro in half. And, you know, I hear a, an organ in that section, stuff like that. And and we would try it, and 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 it would usually work. And and if it didn't, we wouldn't do it. Um, it was a very easy job for me. Sit sit down in the chair, listen to music, and get ideas. You know, right. And get did, paid for it. Did did the ideas come from the bands or did some of the ideas like I, I'm gonna throw one out there, Home Sweet Home. Obviously, probably one of the biggest songs you ever worked on. Yeah. Did that come from the band or did that come from you and your pop sensibility maybe suggesting um, it to the band or you know, the, the the basis of the song, Tommy's uh uh piano riff you came from him. Okay. You know, but then you take the song and you build it and you, you, you get the right intro and the right outro and, and there's a build and then it peaks and then it and then it leaves. You've said what you what what you have to say and then and, and you finish it. And there's a shape to the song. And I always built and then, you know, you'd ebb and flow and 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 there was a crescendo somewhere in the middle. <laughs> you know? Right. And and. uh you know, you really, uh, the producer should have a something to say about every single decision and, okay. and, uh, and he, and should be the main source of inspiration. Um, but what you're doing is taking uh, hopefully something good th th that was created by the band or someone in the band and making it better. So it's not, you know, I never wrote a note. I'm okay. not a songwriter. I, I, I think it's magical being a songwriter. Um, but I can tell you once the song is written, what to do with it. Right on. You know. Right. Let's let's get into a couple of records that I, I think 
most people say are misses, and then we'll get into some of the ones that I can't understand why you think are misses. But I'm going to start with Crocus, change of address. Oh, yeah, yeah. That just seemed like such a stylistic change, you know, for them. And, and I was a huge fan of Headhunter and even the Blitz right before those two. Then change of address came, and it was softer, and it was keyboard-laden. Do you... When when they come to you as somebody that I'm I'm sure when they come to you and want to work with you, you know what they've done. Do you hear what they're doing at that point and say, wait a minute, guys, what's what is this? No, I you know, I have to say that that I remember very little about that album. And I did it admittedly more for the money or the okay. job. The job then uh uh you know other almost everything else i was a big fan and i loved the music but this was this was an established band and i didn't work with established bands very much okay and if i did i made their biggest record right and and i enjoyed the guys uh you know they uh especially i can't remember his name but you know kind of the leader of the group is it mark mark Storacci yeah, or Storacci was the was the fernando same. von arb no I, talk? I, those I, are the only two i remember then <laughs> um, there was an american guy who was a keyboard player he, I, I liked him a lot okay. uh, but anyway um uh I, I just, I didn't listen. I didn't study what they had done previously. Okay. I just, uh, I just listened to what they wanted to do and made a record with, with that, with that band, uh, according to those songs. So if it's a different sounding record, that's one thing. If it's a, if, if, if the whole approach, uh, was different then it's their songs, they wanted to do something different, I think. Right on. So, you know, the same was true with Blue Oyster Cult Mirrors. Right, uh, you know, neither of these albums was uh, a big, a big seller. Um, I enjoyed both of them, uh, the projects, uh, uh, very much. Uh, uh, D Donald Roser, Buck Dharma, kept me in absolute stitches for the entire project. It sure, was, it was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, but, but, but you do. Those are the two established really the only two really established bands well there was lita and then there was la guns but but basically uh in the early days sure you know, those were established bands and i took them on as projects that work it right was, uh, it wasn't i i hadn't didn't have the, uh, the musical passion that i that i had for a lot of other uh bands and acts especially the ones that i signed sure do you take pride in the fact that like like mirrors as an example yeah. has become sort of like it wasn't really big at the time but now like the the 40 year blue oyster call people love it you know they're, they're when when people throw out what's your favorite record it isn't always don't fear the reaper anymore that one gets thrown in sometimes oh, you yeah. know and sometimes it's just people trying to reach and trying to be like cool or whatever on social media but that record has found kind of like cult life after the fact do you take pride in that yes i do sure sure okay. uh, you know um that's almost you know that's enduring music 
um, especially, it, you know, if it doesn't sell a lot in the beginning, uh, it's very gratifying to see it, you know, to see people um, who really enjoy it many years later because they're fans. They didn't just probably very few of them just discovered the band through mirrors. Sure. You know? But if they accept it, if a real fan accepts it and embraces it later on, that's great for me because uh, I could, I could understand they're rejecting it at the time because it wasn't the blue oyster cult that they knew, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there were a couple of other bands that you might be thinking about that, that became cult bands and and have rabid followings, but smaller, you know. Sure. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'll tell you one record anyway that that comes to mind with that immediately is something I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Striper. Oh yeah. That oh. that had to now again. I'm asking more about did you do the research and see what they were about? But Striper yeah. comes to you and is like they're this re- they're like the religion band more or less and that exactly. that was the perception. Yeah. And they come to you and they say, "Well, you know what we want to do? Something with none of that. We right. don't want any of the image. We're going to get rid of the image, but we want the music to not reflect that anymore either." When they do that, how do you approach that record knowing that you're literally going to have to almost reinvent this band in the studio? Well, yeah, I saw it as a great opportunity. Okay. You know, because that would draw attention. Sure. Uh, you know, Striper giving up, not giving up God, but, you know, they they started out throwing Bibles into the audience. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, here I am, not exactly uh, a God-fearing person. I'm more agnostic. Um, not an atheist, Sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, I'm not a religious guy. Um, more cultural. Sure. You know, but, but uh, I, 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 I kind of jumped at the chance because uh, I thought, wow, these guys are coming to me for, for this, you know. Um, and if it had been a standard, you know, kind of, um, Christian music or evangelical or anything like that, I think I would have passed. Okay. You know, but, but, um, it, it wasn't. And when I met with the guys, they were great. I really, I really enjoyed meeting them. Um, I went down to their mother's house in Orange County, California, which, which is a place I rarely uh, had been. (laughs) Right. And, And everything about, my work with that band was new, but but Michael was great and Oz was great. Uh, they they were wonderful people, really sure. really nice. Robert Sweet, uh, just good folks. Uh, and 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 God, after what I'd been through before them, I really appreciated that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and and that's another against the laws. Another one of those records at the time. Yeah, people were like, nah. No, not not what I think of a striper. And right. now I think a lot, probably half their fan base points to that one as the record that nice. they love. You know, nice. so yeah, it's good stuff. You're pointing these things out to me. I wasn't aware of. Oh, really? 
of that uh, with either of those bands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Both both of them are definite records that people look at. Well, and and I think Tom and you can probably appreciate this. It's because we didn't beat ourselves up with them. You know, you gave us Motley Crue, shout the devil. All right, I can speak for myself. When I was thirteen years old, it didn't leave my Walkman for a year. You know, it was, I, I listened to it going to school, coming home every single day, you know, going to play football, you know, whatever I was doing, shout the devil was in my ears. So now I don't listen to it a whole ton because I've played it 8 million times. Well, this is why your parents were angry at you. <laughs> well, there's, there's truth to that. <laughs> Let me get to one that I thought should have been way, 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 way bigger and it's it's one of my favorite records from the entire era and for some reason hardly anybody even still doesn't really know about it the self-titled junkyard record oh really great record you know can't hold back is a great song hollywood is a great song you know hands off is a great song i mean these are great songs yeah. no one grabbed it no uh and it was geffen um yeah. uh I made three records for Geffen, all not not successes, you know, not utter failures. But um, I cannot remember his name. But there was a guitar. The guitar player in that on that Junkyard album went to a bad religion, I think. I believe you're right, although I don't yeah. know his name either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, again, um, good good band really good band there was another band around the same time on geffen called graveyard train right which is totally unknown they, uh, that was that was one of one of my favorites and pariah oh pariah the, the, yeah were three one-off albums um uh, something good about all of them but um you know everything has to be right in order to have a commercial success in the record business you know the promotion has to be there the, the timing the live performance the the recording uh the promotion the the the, the agent everything sure everything. and and occasionally that happens and then then you get a you know you get a home run right but but in, in this case it didn't and i i was pretty I was pretty sure that you were going to say the producers or, or mother's finest. Mother's was, finest. Another great band that should have been way bigger. Just didn't connect. Yeah. Those are my two biggest disappointments. Uh, Cause I thought they were both genius. I, I you know, I was, I, I loved the, the, the those bands. Uh, the producers I don't know. I mean, it was beyond commercial, but hey. Yeah. And yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll lay, list another one, which to me is <laughs> of that style of music is my absolute kid. You not, I've said this for years on my shows. My number one favorite album of the entire era is love hate. Why do you think, or um, oh, yeah. red, red, Blackout in the Red Room. Blackout in the Red. Well, why do you think they call it dope? I I just love it. I, I love it. That again, very disappointing. Um, sure. You know, I wanted to sign that band to 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 me. Okay. To, to to my production company, and then bring it to a label. 
And uh, unfortunately, I I brought the I brought that band to to the attention of of Columbia Records, and they swooped in and signed them before I could sign them to me. It was rude, <laughs> just rude. Right. And, and I mean, it wasn't. It, it, I don't think they did it on purpose, and uh, I'm not sure. But but th then they gave them so much money for to support their their tour. Right. That, you know, they wanted a lot of money for tour support. They basically used up all the, uh, uh, you know, the whole promotional budget for the band. And when it came out, it did not get the push that it deserved. But, yeah, that that was a very interesting band. Very. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the thing with that record, too, is, you know, going back to what you were saying before and, and even what you just were saying about using up all the promotional budget, yeah. talk about all the pieces being in place, had a great record, had some songs that clearly should have done well at radio, definitely had the tours, too. I mean, they toured with ACDC and then right to Dio, you know, it was yeah. like they had the tours to go with it, too. And it just didn't happen. That had to make you nuts as as the production guy. Yes, it's very frustrating. Very frustrating. And then some albums that you do that 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 you you didn't like as much as that love hate record, for instance, are big. You know, mm -hmm. they, they succeed. Uh, you know, there were there were a few albums that weren't my favorites that that sold quite well. Sure. Well, I'll point to one in my catalog and every, everybody else's catalog too, because everybody owns it. Girls, girls, girls. Oh, yeah. I did not think was a good record at all, but you know, it has like two wild sides, a good tune. Yep, that's girls, it. girls, girls is a pretty good tune. Uh, and all in the name of is sort of passable, I guess. Yeah. Everything yeah, I, else, Nona right. and stuff like that. Just like, what is this? <laughs> wild side was a lot of fun. You know, sure. and, and I think it's a great, uh, it's a great song, a great uh, performance, and uh, and and a kooky ending, <laughs> right? <laughs> but Definitely. but I, I, you're right. I I remember very few songs after those two, and that's why they were number one and number two on side one. Right. <laughs> and then fill in the blank. Let me, let me go one back and I don't want to talk a whole lot about Motley because everybody asks you about Motley. I'll leave that for everybody else, but probably of that era, my favorite record is the least favorite for most people, which is kind of a trend for me. I'm definitely not radio hit guy, but I love theater of pain. Yeah. I still love theater of pain, but I love side two of theater of pain, you know, all in the name of rock and, you know, um, fight for your right, use it or lose it. Yeah, I love those songs. For you, when you look at that record, is that another one that you look at and you think, man, that should have been bigger? Because it was widely dissed by the fan yeah. base. Yeah, it, it was a tough record to make because okay. it, was, it, it was squeezed in between two other albums. I mean, Shout at the Devil was a big surprise. Sure. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden it just exploded. And um, what happens is, you know, you, 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 these guys spend their lives building to this moment and mm -hmm. some really good songs. And, and then, uh, it, it, you know, it becomes a hit. And guys 
run back into the studio, write 12 new hit songs. Oh, yeah. You know, and and, and, and record because we book you this giant tour. You're opening for this and you're opening for that. And and so there is massive stress mm-hmm. on on the guys, and which which can lead to increased self medication. And right. there, there there was a more drug usage with that with that record than than either of the other two. And then after Girls Girls Girls, they became a, a health club SWAT team, right? You know, and they did nothing, and 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 that. Performance is evident on on uh, Doctor Feelgood. Um, you know they were clean and and, and and energetic, but theater of pain was problematic. And, sure. and uh, Home Sweet Home was on that album, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank God. <laughs> oh, that was that was it. That was the saving grace. Um, that, that that was very big, but uh, it, it was tough. That sure. that was the uh, probably if Motley Crue uh, ever misbehaved or or needed um, organization or encouragement or you know discipline, right? That was, that was it. That was when yeah. <laughs> and Tommy was dating Tawny Katane. Okay, so <laughs> she showed up at the studio on occasions. Yeah. I'd imagine. <laughs> I didn't remember that. Uh, that's before he met Heather. Right. Uh, yeah. Boy, talk about good luck with that guy. Jeez. <laughs> Heather was great. Sure. Let me ask you about one that you, you said on your website that was a miss for you, which I don't understand that at all, which is why I'm asking. Rip and Tear L.A. Guns. Yeah. That's a great song. Why do, you, is, call, why do you consider that a miss? It's a miss because very few people heard it because okay. it wasn't it wasn't a hit it wasn't a single it wasn't you know it, it wasn't a, a a well-known song off that album uh, i had a lot of those i i consider uh alviderzane by cheap prick mm-hmm. also a miss because i think it's a gem and very few people I think who are cheap prick fans would would cite it as a as one of their their better songs. Sure. Um, there are misses on there that I I mean the the whole is is this are you referring to the CD set or, or uh, I, I'm just I I just saw it on your website where you had the list of hits and okay. misses and you had rip and tear from cocked and loaded. Yeah. And I was right. like, because I yeah uh, it's it's on there because it's also in the book those lists the hits okay. misses and and it's in the book because when I left the business I was allowed to make five hundred uh, two CD sets professional with a with a booklet and everything okay of of Tom Orman's greatest hits and and greatest misses and okay the, and the greatest misses the definition of a miss was one of my favorites. Um, okay. One that I think was really, that I did a good job on, that you've never heard. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, nobody nobody heard Boy Meets Girl, right? Sure. You know, and, and it, they were wonderful, and a complete, uh, you know, departure for me. Complete. Sure. Uh, you know, they wrote songs for Whitney. Right. It was another one, by the way that got away whitney houston yeah wow could have had her 
signed immediately. Right. And the president of Elector Records said no. Huh. Yeah. Is she the biggest the biggest album or the biggest artist that that came through that that you that you should have that you feel like you should have worked on but didn't? I I would not have wanted to produce her. Okay. Uh, but it was as a, as an A&R man, uh she was certainly the biggest act that got away. Sure. Yeah. Um, were 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 there any albums out there that you passed on? Uh, that that became monstrous like you know where where you look back and you're like oh i should have done that one well the closest thing to that was the outlaws um i had already signed molly hatchet and i went yes. to see the outlaws and i thought eh, a little bit too much similarity there so um i i passed on the outlaws that was the only um really successful band that I ever passed on and I and I I passed on thousands of bands <laughs> that's I'd come into the office and just go through cartons of reel-to-reel -reel tape and cassettes and 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 I'd write a personal pass letter to all of them wow uh, not a form letter mm -hmm. you know, uh, which took up a lot of time and I was sure. very careful very careful uh, to 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 compose a proper letter to all the uh, uh, convicts who sent me, I, I got I got cassettes from jail. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, I did, and and uh, I was I was very thorough and and polite with them <laughs> for obvious reasons, <laughs> like they had your address. <laughs> we know where you live. Right. Exactly. All right, Tom, let me let me ask you this, and this is not only you, this is just production gurus in general. Yourself, Bo Hill, Max Norman, most of you guys from that genre, from that time period, Andy Johns, etc., all of you guys. Yeah. There is a revisionist history, I'm gonna call it, where artists come out and hammer you guys saying that oh, they didn't yeah. like they didn't like this and they didn't like that and they all do it with their biggest records you know yeah. d snyder with the twisted record and yeah. and oh. obviously the motley stuff for you and and bo hill was with you know the rat records yeah. comes well, to you know, why why do that why why would they do that it, you know i think all of us are, are curious about that uh if it happens to to others uh 20 you know they love you when you're when when you're there they love you when the record sells and 20 years later you were personally responsible for everything they had not achieved uh i i have uh not heard i cannot recall any instance of a band uh praising their producer 20 years down the line right the, the, one of the that i i didn't uh i didn't do this for that reason to protect myself, but as a defense against their whining, right. uh, I made someone from the band or the whole band approve the record. Right. Approve the final mix in the studio or on the road before I delivered it. So you approved this record. Now you're now you're trashing it. What what, what what's the deal? Or you claim, as in 
Snyder's uh, situation that I destroyed your five million seller. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, he's got issues. I'm, I'm, it's not my problem. Uh, it, it bothered me for a while back then. Um, it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with him. But, but you know, there's one person in every band who, uh, you know, who can revise history. And you're right. It's, it's, it's revising history. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are things that, uh, that have been said about me that were completely uh, lies, fiction. I mean, you know, they'd say, well, he did this or or I did this because he wasn't paying attention, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, they, and, and in D's case, I mean, D went the extra mile to make his statement by doing the still hungry thing after. But right. the thing and and I like D, so I'm, I'm just going to tell you that up front. I, I get along with D. D's D's OK with me. Well, you're, you're lucky. Uh, but but hold your breath. Uh, <laughs> But here, here's the thing I don't like about what he said about it and the fact that he did the still hungry thing and made the heavier record. I don't know if you heard it or not, but he, he, he redid it. He made it more heavy and whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, he has the advantage of 35 years and the changing trend to also lean on. You know, it, it, I've heard it. It is a heavier record. I, I will say it's not as clean as Stay Hungry. It's it's a much dirtier raw record. Yep. But being being as honest as I can be, if you go back to 1983, it wouldn't yeah. have played. It would not have played. It would not have got the attention, and MTV would not have come to him for the videos no. with a harsher version of we're not going to take it or I want to rock and they just wouldn't have. And I, and I think somewhere along the way D and, and the Motley crew guys and all these guys that complain, the rat guys about Bo Hill, they've forgotten the era that they were in. Does that make sense? It, a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, technology alone has, you know, and, 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 and the emphasis on the bottom end, uh-huh. Uh, you know where was where where was the bottom? Where's my base? Um, it, it, things change, and and they are trends, recording trends, and sound trends, and people respond to different uh, you know different sounding records. Um, it doesn't bother me. You know uh, the success uh, speaks for itself. Bands hire producers. Right. They pay the producer to help them. Why did you let me do another record if you didn't like? Right. You know, um, they have they have they have needs. I'm, I'm you know the only reason I can figure out, and I don't care anymore, uh, why D went so nuts. Uh, you know, I mean, really went out of his way to, mm-hmm. to trash talk me. Is that he didn't want me to have any credit? For a big hit, I mean, they didn't have any big hits until I was hired, and I was I was hired by the president of Atlantic Records, and, yeah. and regardless of whether they wanted me or not, they basically had to use me because he said, "I want you to use this guy." And when he called me at home, he said, "I truly think that you're the only guy who can make a hit with this band. I, they can't get arrested in the states." Right. And, and, and interestingly, and, they never had a big hit after either. Interestingly. And, uh, you know, 
when we were deciding on what material to do, I suggested a Saxon song. Right. I wanted them to cover Strong Arm of the Law. And and he went nuts. He said, Saxon, we toured with them. Why would I do a Saxon song? It's a cover song. And and what was the first single off their next album? Yeah, Leader, Leader of the Pack. Come <laughs> on. You know, talk about hypocrisy. Anyway, look. I'm through with that. It's sure. Over. You know, he, he he has to deal with his, with you know, with his discomfort and, and it'll it'll follow him to his grave. And that's OK with me. Right on. No. Well, Tom, I got to ask you about today's today's production yeah. because it's not there at all. In my opinion, it just right. everything's bricked. Everything's full blast the textures are no longer part of music and and maybe the bigger problem is there's just not any Tom Wormans anymore. There's not any Brendan O'Brien's anymore or Andy Johns or Max Norman or, you know, people are recording in their house and, exactly. and, and they're the professional ear is no longer a part of it, which to me is one of the biggest reasons that rock has just gone dormant what do yeah. you think as somebody that created so many hits and had your ear you know to the to the ground to hear what everybody was doing versus what we have now yeah uh we made those all the fabulous music from 1954 basically when elvis came on the scene you know to 1990 ish it was made by real people with real instruments, mm -hmm. you know, and and now everything's perfect. We we made record warts and all. There were there were mistakes in there. There were clams in there. I mean, the Stones, uh, uh, you know, they didn't care. Right. They, they 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 operated on feel alone. I mean, Keith is not the technician that Joe Walsh is, but but the feel and 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 the, the riffs he came up with. I mean forget about it sure. um, and and now you you know they'll they'll go into the studio and look at the music instead of listen to it mm -hmm. look on the screen they'll pick one snare hit you know they'll they'll, they'll go through a hundred snare samples and they'll pick one and it'll be the it'll be the snare for the entire song the same hit sure and that for some reason that prevents me or, or, or I, I assume many people from being emotionally moved by the mm -hmm. music one way or another. Um, I, I still listen to 40 year old songs on my workout tape. Sure. My, my, my you know, on my phone and I have Bluetooth <laughs> earphones. I go to the gym and I listen and, and, and these songs that still inspire me. But, but if you, if you take something from today, nah, it, it wears out very quickly. And, mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I don't know. It's technology. There are no, sometime in, in, in around the 90s, uh, late 80s and early 90s, um, recording engineers started to produce. They, right. You know, they became producers. And all the producers of that era knew how to engineer. Um, I was as I said, completely dependent on, on a technician, a recording engineer. I'd say, this should sound like that, and he would make it happen. Um, but then 
somehow they they just said we don't need uh, you know we don't need a producer anymore and and the sound of the record became at least as important or 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 perhaps more important than the content mm -hmm. and, and that and 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 then things changed no you're you know? right you're definitely right well, Tom, um, I could talk to you for three days because I have a million things, but I'll, we'll wrap it up for here. You're always welcome to come back if you want to talk more about it. But yeah. for now, let's let's tell people why you're actually here one more time. The name of the book, Turn It Up, My Time Making Hit Records in the Glory Days of Rock Music. It's Tom Weirman. It is out next week on um, wherever you buy books these days, I guess Amazon or wherever. But um yeah. Tom, where where should we tell people to go to keep up with you and uh, to pre-order the book and all that stuff? Amazon is is fine, or okay. you can support your local bookstore, which 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 is always nice to do. Um, you know uh, that that's that's really it. Uh, I don't know if there'll be an audio book. I don't know. You know, I. I have no idea. I'm sitting here like a uh, recording artist uh, waiting for the album to come out. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I got good, good early reviews and uh, everyone says it's an easy read. So, well, I'll, I'll second that. I'm not all the way through it. I only got it last week. So I'm about maybe a hundred pages in, but it's okay. quick, quick hundred pages. And, and maybe it's just because I'm such a, you know, I'm a nerd for this stuff anyway, so it's it's all fascinating to me. But it's a it is a it's a cool read. I I suggest everybody get it, and especially this audience that listens to so many of these records. I guarantee you, if you guys still have the albums, if you open them up, you'll see Tom's name in a lot of them. So, <laughs> so Tom, it's been great chatting with you. One more time, the name of the book: Turn It Up, My Time Making Hit Records in the Glory Days of Rock Music. And Tom Worman, thanks so much for joining me here on Chris Aiken Presents. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Do you have the idea for a great podcast, but don't have the space or equipment to produce one? Don't wait another minute. Audio Bay Studios is the best place to produce and stream your podcast live. With 4K cameras, professional equipment and more, Audio Bay Podcasting Studio is the best place to showcase your great ideas. Call us today at 440-539-1150 for more information and to book your podcasting session with Audio Bay Podcasting Studio. Call today.